Through adopting radical extremism, some young men who previously felt humiliated and emasculated by their peers can now feel powerful and intimidating and gain status, attention from young women, and the comradeship and solidarity of other young men like themselves. Through that solidarity, they come to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends. Episode 230 of Embrace the Void, where we stand united with our voidy siblings in arms. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking about the tensions in community organizing. So, Let's get real with the politics. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Rochelle DeFord, assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Hartford and author of the new Solidarity in Conflict. Shelley, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I uh, saw you promoting the book uh, coming out on Twitter, and I was excited because it sounded like a fun topic. And now that I've read it, I'm really excited to have a little chat about it. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to be here. So before we get to the book, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background and what got you interested in solidarity and conflict? Sure. So... It's actually kind of strange story. I went to graduate school interested in social and political thought. And specifically, I was really interested in international problems. So my undergraduate thesis was on cosmopolitanism. And eventually I wrote my graduate dissertation on world government. I studied under a uh, Max Pensky. He's a critical theorist. And so I sort mm-hmm. of have worked in the critical theory tradition. And in the course of writing my dissertation, I started to see that all these problems that people sort of made really big in international contexts are actually just municipal problems as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all this literature on global democracy, it's really just also the same kinds of problems we have in municipal democracies in states, cities, and other types of municipalities. <laughs> just, just at scale, you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and people get sort of mystified because it's like, oh, well, it's across international borders. And it's like, well, that's not actually what's causing any of this dysfunction. <laughs> mm, interesting. What, yeah. what do you feel like is more sort of causing the dysfunction there? So for me, I think people think that in international politics, the dysfunction is caused by not having like um, 
a bounded territory or something. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that it's caused by like not having a real sense of a society that uh, democracy Mm. is attached to. And so it's not so much like the territory or the polity or something like that, but Mm -hmm. the way that human beings relate to each other. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by like a sense of society there? Or is it like hard to say because we don't have it and therefore it's like... (laughs) Yeah, it is hard to say. This is like a huge problem. uh, What constitutes a society itself? So what I tend to mean by it is the way that human beings work together to sort of build ways of living. And... Mm -hmm. In an international context, of course, we're doing that all the time. It's just mediated through all of these weird channels, like Mm -hmm. importing and exporting of goods, the movement of labor and the movement of capital. And in smaller contexts, that's happening too. this kind of like cooperation and uh, distribution of goods. But there's also an element of being with other people and figuring out how to live with them. Mm-hmm. And sort of that's one of the things that being part of a society means is, you know, being social. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not figuring that out very well is what you're saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look around. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it, you're not wrong. I don't, I don't I'm not disagreeing with you. Just um, no. And you mentioned you sort of you come from a critical theorist background. Do you want to say a little bit about like what kind of flavor of critical theorists? Because it seems like there's, you know, a lot of different flavors these days. Yeah, so I was trained by, uh, you might get offended if I call him a Habermasian, but I was okay. <laughs> I was trained in the Frankfurt School tradition. Mm-hmm. And so... I've uh, heard of them big in destroying Western civilization, I hear. They loved it. Couldn't get enough yeah. of it. <laughs> right. But I'm also interested in like the, the strains of critical theory that come after Foucault as well. I think... Mm-hmm. There's not as big of a gap between sort of this French tradition and the German one as some people mm-hmm. sort of whip it up into, I think. I see. Now, I'm, I want to acknowledge, you know, I'm just sort of a dummy analytic philosopher who's been reading some critical theory in the past year and a half during this education degree. Um, but it might be surprising to some, especially people who've gotten sort of the mainstream accounts of these issues filtered through the culture wars and stuff to hear that you're a critical theorist who's interested in talking about civilization and solidarity, where it seems like in their minds, critical theories about destroying civilizations or societies or solidarity or something like that. So how do those two things sort of piece together in your mind? So for me, I think the weirdest thing about this is that I think of critical, like the Frankfurt School tradition of critical theory as really trying in some way to to realize the Enlightenment project hmm. in some ways, right? Uh-huh. Like, and, and so there's this weird element of it where it's like, no, like the a lot of the things the Enlightenment gave us were really good. And it just so happened to give us those things along with lots of pathological damaging things, right? So Mm -hmm. the Enlightenment gets us the Holocaust, but the Enlightenment also gets us lots of freedoms and ways of living and ways of being that we should want to keep. And so there's this sort of dual character. Mm -hmm. And to, to the extent that like, quote unquote, Western civilization is more the Holocaust than it is those other things. Uh, We should be really worried about that. (laughs) 
Mm. So you're sympathetic to the to the sort of reading of these theories as being like genuinely critical of something they value as opposed to like critical of it for the sake of destroying it and replacing it with something they think is better. Both. <laughs> Both. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Right? So they're critical of it as something they value that's unrealized. Mm-hmm. And in the sense that it's unrealized, there are ways that the world we live in needs to be like radically changed in order to be compatible with anything like human freedom, mm-hmm. a good life, some kind of moral value, um, those sorts of things. And, and we're going to talk some at the end about like, you know, policy implications for what you're talking about in the book. But given that this is going to be kind of very theoretical in, in lots of ways, it might be helpful maybe to ground a little bit here at the beginning and say a bit about like where you sort of are trying to go here. So like, you know, what is the sort of central thesis of this book? And like, what's one really concrete thing that someone could hang on to, to try to understand sort of your project here? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. So I think the central thing that I'm trying to do with the book is to show how important solidarity is to democratic life. So, and and not just to democratic life, but in um, political thought. So solidarity gets sort of shuttled into the realm of moral theory. Um, hmm. And that I think does a real disservice to it as a form of political organization, a form of like social life making, um, and a form of sort of agitation for better, uh, for a better world. Mm -hmm. So you can think about, um, any kind of solidarity organization. So, so you could think about, for example, like black lives matter, might be a good example of this. It's sort of a non, it's a distributed organization, right? It has a central uh, area, but it's not like to, to consider yourself a member of Black Lives Matter, you need like a card that you signed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the goal of being uh, or aligning yourself with Black Lives Matter is to build a world in which Black Lives Matter as a political project and mm-hmm. so there's a sense in which that's an important project for a democratic society um, because it's a project of trying to bring about a democratic mm-hmm. society. <laughs> I see. Okay. So, so you see solidarity as being sort of crucial to actualizing this ideal of this properly democratic society and you know, organizations like Black Lives Matters as being kind of concrete examples of that approach. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And okay. I I think also, though, that just being a member of a solidarity group is mm-hmm. part of a way of bringing that about for yourself, right? So... Oh, interesting. So you, you, you sort of say that as if maybe to push back a little bit on the idea that like... That, you know, some people say that, well, if you're not doing X, Y, Z or something, right, if you're just being a part of this thing in this broader sense and that's insufficient or something. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. even if in a broader sense, most, most solidarity organizations fail at their goals, they disintegrate before they achieve whatever it is they set out to achieve. Right. (laughs) Now we're getting goity. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like the history of how this functions is failure and it's failure for basically all solidarity groups across the spectrum. Um, like wow 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of a dark project. It um, took a turn, didn't it? <laughs> it did. Uh, this is why you have me here. Um, no, I'm, I'm excited. So yeah, tell me about that. Why, why do they all fail? Well, I don't know why they fail per se, but I think that mm. we keep trying to do it anyway, because there is a certain sense of making ourselves and making a world in which we can be. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that solidarity organizations try to do is even if they can't transform a broad area of society, they try to create like micro areas where people can uh, like build connection and community with each other, where they can exist as what they are with each other and sort of create the mm -hmm. conditions of the possibility for that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we should be careful. I got the impression you're not saying they fail to achieve any of their objectives ever or something like that, but more like on a long enough timeline, they all kind of collapse into splitters and infighting or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that I, about right? That's about right. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not that none of them ever achieve anything. It's mm -hmm. that none of them ever achieve everything. Mm-hmm. And I think you have some really interesting sort of theories about sort of why those things happen, but also some pushbacks to the kind of conventional narrative that, that what this means is a successful solidarity group is one that avoids any kind of infighting. So let me unpack that some. Let's talk a little bit about your definition of uh, solidarity. So uh, in the book, you define it in terms of, I think, two main co um, components oppositional, emancipatory, and unifying democratic. Um, do you want to unpack those two pieces a little bit of that definition? Sure. So this this way of thinking about solidarity is the result of a weird problem in, in the literature about solidarity, actually, is that there are, there are like 30,000 definitions of solidarity and half of mm -hmm. them conflict with the other half. And right. one of the things that I was trying to do is to say, okay, what are the useful things that come out of two separate traditions of thinking about this? So mm. in democratic theory, solidarity is this thing that sort of integrates us into a society. So um, like a kind of national sentiment could be something that integrates you into a society. And you might have solidarity with members of your polity as uh, members of a nation or something like that. Mm -hmm. right? And so there's this democratic feature where solidarity works to unify us. And mm -hmm. that's uh, its primary function. Okay. And then in, it's not just in the feminist literature, but I use that as sort of the archetype. Solidarity is this thing that people use to fight, right? It's mm -hmm. a, a conflict-ridden uh, form of fighting against a group in order to achieve some kind of emancipatory goal. And those two things are extremely incompatible with each other, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is causing unity and the other one uh -huh. is causing conflict. A and, bit intention, one might say. Yeah, right? Um, and so the thought was, but solidarity really does do both of those things. And mm -hmm. so how, how can we make sense of a relationship between a group of people that at the same time is unifying and disunifying? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it, it seemed like my first reading, at least, was that like, 
the first thing you want to reject is any the kind of heresies that would abandon one half of those that tension right like like i was saying sort of the ones that, for example that will say you know we should just do away with the emancipatory conflicty side of things and focus on the unity side of things for example is that sort of where you go with this that's exactly right yeah i mm-hmm. i look at this and i say both of these are really politically valuable things this idea that we do need some kind of um, form of being together politically, right? This democratic unifying element. But we also live in a world where um, structures of power make it such that not everyone is, mm-hmm. even if we're all unified, not everyone is equally unified together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the oppositional emancipatory element is to say, okay, well, what are we missing here? Who's being left out of this? In what ways are they being excluded or um, dep- oppressed or dominated? And mm-hmm. both of those are necessary for a um, democratic political project, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're putting these two things in tension, right? So, so what does that mean then sort of like for policy on the ground? Does it mean that like, you know, in terms of like the formation of our group, for example, right? Do we want something where we know that inevitably it's going to break up or something like that? And so our, our goals should be tailored to that kind of timeline or something? Or how do you, you know, like what are some examples of the way in which, you know, you, you feel like we need to balance these two things in practice? So I, the easy answer like the uncomplicated answer is that I think of the two as being just about separate things. And we sort of confuse them when we think they're both about just being in solidarity in this simple way. So I think about the fact that being in a solidarity group means that you're actually in two groups at the same time, right? So Mm -hmm. you're a member of a solidarity group, but you're also a member of a broader society or a broader polity. And that's what you're attempting to bring about some kind of change in. And so you can have both of these levels of solidarity operating at the same time, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the different group relations. So internal to mm-hmm. the solidarity group, you see this sort of democratic unifying element where you have individuals who have become unified into a solidarity group. Mm-hmm. And then when that group deals with members outside of it or um, like a legal institution or something like that, then they can have this sort of oppositional face to the outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, how does the moralizing part tie into this? Because you talk in the book and you were just mentioning a second ago about like there's a problem with the moralizing of solidarity and this will sort of tease us into um with my favorite part of course which is the the issues around anti-social solidarity um but like what is the major issue with because it seems like what you're describing there has a moral component to it in terms of like i think you know the world is immoral and i want to bring about solidarity so that i can improve the moral status of the world so so why is it wrong to moralize about the nature of solidarity in this way so i don't think it's wrong to moralize about solidarity but i think that we're missing a lot when we do, right? One of the things that I think we miss when we moralize about solidarity at at a minimum is that this is a collective endeavor, 
right? So when we look at solidarity as a moral imperative or as a simple moral category, um, we start to think about the world in these super individualized, atomized ways. What are my duties? What ought I to do? Um, rather than looking at solidarity as a form of sort of existing in the world differently. Right? Mm -hmm. So rather than saying like, okay, well, there's this group, Black Lives Matter, and they're making a moral claim on me for something I need to do. Mm -hmm. Which is a, one way of thinking about solidarity, right? That's the moral way. But I think that that obscures the important sort of political metaphysical things that solidarity is meant to be about. Interesting. And and then the other one I think that you mentioned in there was that like by moralizing about it in this kind of way, we exclude the possibility, it seems like, of having any conversation about anti-social or anti-democratic solidarity, right? Because it seems like solidarity is only solidarity towards moral ends on that definition. Is that sort of about right? Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we We miss the fact that solidarity is not always good. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That sometimes people are in solidarity toward bad aims. And along with that, we miss the fact that we um, sort of calls for solidarity don't have to be answered. <laughs> so, so as a moral huh. imperative, right, it seems like a call for solidarity then calls for an answer. Um, mm -hmm. And that sort of misses it misses a, a bunch about what solidarity organizations on the ground actually do because sometimes they do really pernicious stuff and mm -hmm. I, I simply shouldn't participate in them. Yeah. So for example, you, you know, in your chapter on antisocial solidarity, you focused on, for example, white supremacists. And I was actually surprised because it's, as I understood it, you said in the book that traditionally white supremacy has not been seen as a sort of, solidarity because of this kind of moralizing account of solidarity it's viewed as antisocial and so how could it be solidarity now you know you call it antisocial solidarity but it does seem to me that like from a white supremacist perspective their view is just good old-fashioned solidarity and the like you know mix race mixing is the real kind of antisocial ideology so like I'm, I'm interested how does your account of solidarity parse sort of a disagreement like that yeah, this is a good question. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about whether I'm just saying like, no, these are the baddies and I'm going to come up with a theory <laughs> that says, look, these are bad guys. We shouldn't be doing this. Um, but I, the book is really guided by um, three sort of what I consider to be like non-negotiable political ideals for democratic life. Um, and And it's that we should avoid to the extent that we can, um, exclusion and expulsion and extermination, right? These are fundamentally just incompatible with a kind of democratic life. And so when we look at solidarity organizations like white supremacist groups, and they look around and they say, okay, well, all of you multicultural liberals are really undermining the fabric of society, Mm -hmm. They don't mean society as such. <laughs> they mean a society in which I get to be dominant. Um, and that's really what they're upset about is being undermined. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that actually isn't like, it is social, but it's a thoroughly individual problem, right? I want to feel like I am a dominant person. 
And you see that kind of desire for domination and hierarchy reflected back at you in the structure of the organization itself. Um, mm-hmm. Where there's this like deeply stratified way of thinking about the members such that uh, some are just more important or better than others. So in this sense, are they more like sort of authoritarian or hierarchical forms of solidarity? And that like what we mean by antisocial is that that kind of dominance and hierarchical approach is ultimately sort of contrary to what you think of as the kind of flourishing society. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Interesting. So I want to dig a little bit more into your analysis of what's going on in these antisocial solidarity groups, because you talk about this idea of sort of melancholy and psychic solidarity in response to melancholy. And you specifically here bring in as well um, the the sort of turf community. Um, we could, I think, list several other groups that could fit this category, like incels or something like that. Oh, um, I talk about say- them. Yeah, that's right. You do talk about the insults as well. That's right. Um, could you explain this idea of what, what? First of all, what you mean by when you think of melancholy and this kind of psychic uh, psychic solidarity idea? And I also am curious a bit about like how how do we avoid this turning into just diagnosing our ideological enemies as like emo kids? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's such a bad thing to do that, but okay, okay. <laughs> That's fine. If you want to bite that emo bullet, that's fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't have to, I don't think, right? Okay. So <laughs> the explanation is something like this. So I rely on um, a psychoanalytic framework for thinking about identity and thinking about identity formation specifically. So melancholy is about a loss in psychoanalysis, right? It's the feeling you get when something is missing, is probably the best way to put it. And I think for these groups, the, the they're not the only ones who get the feeling that something is missing. I think that any person who is thoughtful and looks around at the world and looks around at their life thinks something is missing here. Something mm-hmm. has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. For these groups, what they identify as going missing are the social conditions in which they can feel that they have a dominative identity, that they get to enact their will on the world, that they get to um, enforce their desires on others and get others to do what they want for them. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is that what these groups are trying to do really for each other is create these psychological conditions. So to the Mm -hmm. extent that they can't materially bring about the world they want, they're just trying to psychologically bring about the identity feeling that they want. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for example, you, you know, you cite the um, uh, incel mass, mass violence example, right? Where it's like, there's no way in which, shooting up a sorority actually increases the likelihood that incels are going to get any of the things that they want, but it gives them a kind of feeling of us against them and sort of this sense of striking back. So a similar feeling to what like Trump provides for his supporters or something like that. This kind of psychological wage. And I think you even do did you also reference Du Bois's sort of psychological wage in there as well, right? Yeah, I do. That's that's where the chapter starts, is to say, mm-hmm. well, we spend a lot of time right, looking at the actual wages of white supremacy. Um, and 
we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the psychological wages of it. Um, and I think solidarity is a really good way of thinking about those wages, right? You get the sense that uh, you'll be defended by white people when you are a white person, right? You mm -hmm. get the sense that you get to enact your will on others in ways that won't be questioned. And those sorts of things are really important for some people's sense of who they are in the world, right? Because if they mm -hmm. don't have that, then they have to answer other difficult questions about who am I vis-a-vis -vis the world I live in? Um, because I'm not this thing that I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And you're right that it does seem like it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the actual thing. In some cases it is, but like, you know, thinking of Trump and, and January 6th, for example, there's a sense in which January 6th, this this sort of riot is in, a you know, an attempt to assert their reality and sort of a solidarity in the kind of ways that you're describing. And it just runs, you know, right into a wall of reality. And now, you know, people are being rounded up and, and like charged with sedition and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you don't get the sense that the collapse of that particular moment of solidarity is promoting an actual collapse of that community's sort of psychic solidarity. Yeah, I think that's right. So like if you listen to the people on the day talk about what they're doing, it's clear that they all, not they all, right? That's too strong. Many of them feel like they have answered a personal call by Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that they have sort of walked that back, it seems mostly like they've done that in court in order mm -hmm. to try to like, at the advice of their lawyers, intelligently try to get out of as much jail time as they can. Right. 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 And so like, they really do feel like, no, this is, I'm a part of something bigger than me. And mm -hmm. I ought to be doing this, right? Like mm -hmm. this sort of fundamentally dominative move of overturning uh, however many million people's votes, right? Mm -hmm. Us 300 people should be able to decide. Yeah, I mean, this just, this rings so many bells for me in the like conspiracism world too that I spend a lot of time in where, you know, if you look at the nature of QAnon, people will talk about how the real value that QAnon provides is this community, this shared communal experience of a group game, like a group activity where everybody is constructing their reality together and it gives them this, you know, and again, it is in response to a genuine, I think, felt anxiety about you know, a loss of meaning or a loss of the world or something like that. Um, but it really is this like very clear kind of psychological wage that is then being sort of, you know, skimmed off the top by, you know, various social media companies or things like that, that are all kind of commodifying the sense of, of solidarity for their own profits. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and this sense of solidarity is not the, like, I'm not the only person to have ever pointed out one of the things that solidarity does is give us communities, right? Mm -hmm. It gives us a place where we feel like we belong. It gives us a place where we feel like we can uh, be with other people, right? And mm -hmm. so it's not all that surprising that solidarity has like this long tradition in the Catholic church, for instance, like it's not surprising that churches would be or think of themselves as involved in a solidaristic project because that's important for us. And mm -hmm. the troublesome part of it comes when we go looking for it 
in places we shouldn't find it. (laughs) So when I go looking for solidarity in my ability um, to tell people what they're allowed to call themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so I go looking for all these people who say, oh, no, we need to tell this group of people they're not allowed to call themselves by these pronouns. Mm -hmm. That's where the problem arises, is I'm looking for a sense of that belonging and identity in the wrong places. I just shouldn't Mm. have it there. Interesting. And this raises another question as an atheist I have to ask. I'm guessing the answer is going to be it depends. But like, do you generally tend to see religious solidarity communities as being more in the like antisocial melancholy side of things that that you're talking about versus the more sort of pro-social kind of solidarity? Well, one of the things that I try to try to make clear is that any solidarity group can go mm-hmm. wrong like this, mm-hmm. right? We can all get invested in trying rather than trying to achieve the goals of the group, trying to achieve some benefit for ourselves. And mm. A church can do that just as well as the DSA can do that. And so the missing link for me isn't so much what style the organization is in, right? Because I can easily imagine churches that sort of participate in solidarity in like really beneficial and emancipatory ways by like... Mm -hmm. um, Historically, like educating uh, people who are enslaved, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm that strikes me as like a solidaristic behavior that's also aimed at emancipation. Interesting. So, you know, other than we can all end up, you know, we can all go bad. What are there other like major takeaways that you feel like are important from looking at the antisocial solidarity side of things? This sort of the understanding of melancholy, but is there other stuff that you feel like is a, is a key takeaway here from this part? I think another key takeaway from this part is that, um, I I kind of think of this book a little bit as a kind of love letter to infighting. So mm-hmm. I think the the sort of other key to this, I think solidarity groups go wrong, is when they start to try to um, like silence dissent from within and start mm-hmm. to ex- try to exclude um, internal problems, right? Because a solidarity organization is built in a society that has entrenched structures of domination. Mm -hmm. We can reproduce those within a solidarity group very easily. And so infighting is a way of trying to agitate those same emancipatory conflicts from within the group, or at least Mm -hmm. it can be. And I don't, I argue that uh, these kinds of antisocial solidarity groups they don't do that and they don't do it because they just exclude difference. Mm -hmm. They don't allow for infighting. That's exactly right. They can't fundamentally Mm -hmm. allow for it. Interesting. So, and that would sort of play into the kind of ideas about how those groups, especially in the sort of conservative authoritarian sphere tend to have less of that kind of disagreement. And that would make sense if you were a very hierarchical kind of have kind of approach. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, pieces that fit together there for sure um now you you mentioned some other sort of valuable um 
you know, traits of solidarity practices, one of which you describe as sort of the forging of narrative resources. Can you say a little bit more and maybe give an example of what you mean by forging narrative resources? Sure. So this one of the way of thinking about this, I think, is that one of the things that solidarity groups do is they develop new goals in the process of becoming a group. So all of the members of a group might come together and have different ideas about what they want to achieve. So um, one of the examples that I give in the book is, um, I think, uh, Bay Area Gay Liberation, BAGEL. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's such a good acronym. I just, I wish I was a member of a group called Bagel. Uh Are you sure you don't just want a bagel? I mean, I do love bagels. So what happens in this group is this group comes together and sort of all of these um, queer people are trying to understand what it is that they actually want to achieve. And in that kind of process of internal conversation and debate and discussion, they make a series of choices about the types of things they're going to try to achieve and the types of things they aren't, right? And what they're doing is trying to sort of forge the resources necessary to meet with members outside of the group, right? In order Mm -hmm. to sort of because a solidarity group can't just be this internal thing where we all get together and talk about the world we want to live in. We have to, you know, unfortunately go talk to the world that we don't want to live in. Are you sure about that? (laughs) I have had several individuals to my left tell me that we can in fact never talk to anybody who does not agree with us. Well, I don't know that we necessarily need to like talk to them to convince them, right? Mm -hmm. But, But it's helpful to be able to articulate, here's a vision of a world that we want to inhabit. Here's a vision of a society we want to inhabit. And if we, Mm -hmm. and fundamentally, if a group can't do that, it's going to have a lot of problems. And there are a lot of good reasons why groups struggle to do this, um, for reasons having to do with the way that language comes about as Mm -hmm. a part of a dominant discourse, right? And so... Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Can you, can you give like an example? Like, how, what do you mean about the language side of this? Sure. I mean, the, I think the classic example of this is like um, sexual harassment, right? Just the, mm-hmm. the the term, right? So if a group of people senses something as a problem, but there's not a name for it that identifies it as a problem, we're going to mm-hmm. have real trouble trying to get it taken seriously as a problem. Mm-hmm. So you have to make that you have to make up the word. Well, not right. just make up the word, but we all have to come to a consensus about what it is that is the problem, right? Uh-huh. Because we're not just operating without the word. We're operating with these vague senses of like something's going wrong there. Mm-hmm. And it feels bad or somebody hurt me in some way, or a law is stopping me from living in a way that I would like to. And we have Mm -hmm. to come up with ways of understanding those things, but we also have to come up with ways of meeting others who don't necessarily understand those things. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's hopelessly vague. (laughs) No, I mean, I get what you're saying, and it is sort of this endless kind of project, right? Because you'll come up with words and... The people will say, well, you're just making up new words for things that we don't really need these words for, or these words are too confusing. And there's all this sort of 
there's attempts to kind of shove these words back into the box, right, in various situations. And, you know, and, and some of that, I think, is genuine on the other side, too, where it feels like, oh, well, this is overcomplicating things or something like that, right? And so we're always kind of in battle about what is the language that we are allowed to use to shape and understand our world. Um, and and so you, so you sort of see solidarity, I guess, as a kind of a way for individuals to to work together to advocate for these particular linguistic and, and metaphysical conceptions of the world or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of like um, a test kitchen for mm-hmm. how to understand uh, domination or how to understand oppression. So mm-hmm. when we think about un- our own understanding of ourselves in the world, like one thing that I, I'll give an example as like, what happens when I teach sometimes, I'm sure other people have had this experience, a student will read something and they'll say, I've had this experience and I didn't know there was a way to explain it or I didn't Mm. know there was a name for it. I didn't know this Mm -hmm. happened to anyone else or anyone else felt this way. Um, And there's this really sort of amazing seeing of the world differently that happens Mm. in that interaction between the student and the text. Mm -hmm. And that happens in solidarity organizations as well. Mm. That makes sense. So so let's talk a little bit about this idea of like, what is the world that solidarity organizations are kind of trying to project, kind of trying to produce um, in the world? Because, you know, first of all, you took a couple of swings at democracy over the course of this book that I thought were rather interesting. Um, and, and here's where, you know, we, we see that critical theory reemerging, right? But you essentially say an ideal world would not require democracy. Is that, do I have that about right? And do you yeah. want to maybe unpack that a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's right. I think Mm -hmm. democracy is fundamentally a political system designed for a world that's bad. Um, And and not like irredeemably bad, but it's hard to say that this system would be one that we had if we all sort of agreed on the basis of what made life meaningful and worthwhile and Mm -hmm. that we felt like we could build it together with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't have that, I think is a bad feature of the world. I think that would Mm -hmm. be a nice feature. Um, Now, yes, sorry. So, so why, why isn't it that like, if we all loved each other and got along (laughs) and stuff like that, right? Why wouldn't we still want a democracy? It's just a way to like, hash out our disagreements or something. We don't hate each other, but we like, you know, maybe we have scarce resources that we have to distribute or something like that. And so we're sorting that out as a community. Why is democracy sort of not the best model for that issue? That sort of um, those kind of problems. Well, I think that those kinds of problems, these sorts of like technical solution problems, right, Mm -hmm. are not, you don't necessarily need a democracy to solve those. If we agree on the basis on which the problem should be solved. <laughs> so we only need a democracy to figure out the distribution of scarce resources because we disagree about how the resources should be distributed, not because we don't understand uh, like the logistics of moving resources from one place to another. Right? And mm-hmm. so I think that the two, right, we can't actually have like this nice world where we all like like each other and agree on things and then still need democratic 
decision-making to figure out these kinds of technical questions. So you would just see it as like in the ideal world, right? If, if solidarity organizations all successfully, you know, achieved their ends or something like that, we would have a world in which, you know, we had a bunch of bureaucracy for solving large scale logistical problems, but it wouldn't necessarily be democratic in nature. Yeah, I think that's right. You well, do you have any thoughts about what like what your government would be in that kind of world? Or is it like, you know, like we don't know because like we've never gotten there. We don't know what utopia is going to look like or something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just so fundamentally alien to the world we live in. I actually have a lot of trouble thinking about ideal worlds and an ideal society. And so to the extent that I think that democracy is suited for a non-ideal world, um, I think that because it comes out of a non-ideal world <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and sort of it's, it's a solution to a problem in the actual world, not a solution to a problem we've invented in a perfect world or something like that. And so I have a real problem with even even the basis of trying to figure out what an ideal world would have. Um, mm -hmm. I understand the value of thinking about a regulative ideal and saying like, oh, that's what we're getting toward, right? Mm -hmm. um, but a means of political organization for it, I think, I mean, some, I'm sure people have a better imagination than I do, but mm -hmm. I have a real trouble just even imagining what kinds of problems could persist in such a world. Fair enough. And we don't have to get too far into that because we can always just focus on you, you seem to also be critical of the idea of democracy, even in the actual world that we're currently in. Right. So, you know, you say, for example, that like two common defenses of democracy is that it generally promotes human flourishing and generally prevents people like Trump. But that like in reality, it seems to do neither. Um, do you feel like democracy is good for something? Do you feel like democracy is better than all the other alternatives? You know, that kind of classic quote. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of the best we have for now. We have all bad options. And mm -hmm. I think that when we look at the values of a democratic society, I think they're good values. I don't think we have them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I don't think that a democracy would give us a perfect polity, right? Groups can make collectively really damaging decisions and really exclusionary and um, alienating. Well, that's not the right word for it, but exclusionary is um, mm -hmm. or oppressive decisions in large ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And sort of that, I think, is how I see this problem of antisocial solidarity being connected up to my sort of broader thoughts about how democ uh, democracies work in the world. Uh-huh. And yeah, and you tie in there as well, the sort of neoliberal concern about like um, sort of abolishing a more robust sense of society and, you know, and focusing on the atomizing of um, individuals. Do you have, you know, putting all that stuff together, I, I, broadly speaking, do you feel like we're going in the wrong direction on these sorts of things? Do you feel like, you know, we think of as quote unquote modern society is, you know, similar to what some conservatives will argue, right? Trending in a direction that is anti-social and, and individually isolationist in those kinds of ways? I think we are, I, I mean, we're in like a vacillation when I think about it, right? So mm -hmm. there's this kind of relationship, I think, that um, solidarity has to 
the isolationary tendencies of the world we live in is that people seek it out. We, mm-hmm. um, the, there's this long section of the book that's probably like the most boring one on the Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> boring um, to everyone except Steven Pinker, who I'm sure <laughs> loves that part. Oh, I bet he will. I'll send it to him when it comes out. <laughs> um, what do you think, uh-huh. Steve? But one of the things that I sort of argue from that is that like all these Enlightenment thinkers basically were just like, we hate each other. Like we hate living with each other. I just don't like it. But also I want to do it or I have to do it Mm -hmm. or doing it improves me in some way. Mm -hmm. And so there is a real sense, I think, where it's not a new idea to say we seek out these relationships with each other even in the midst of like forces that push toward isolation or something like that. And that's not necessarily good or necessarily bad. It just is because Mm -hmm. half of us are going and baking the crumbs with QAnon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then um, a bunch of Starbucks workers are trying to unionize. And so Mm -hmm the drive toward being in solidarity with each other, toward trying to build a world we want to live in, it's not unipolar, right? It, I could get driven into um, QAnon or I could get driven into labor organizing. And mm-hmm. a lot of where, where someone gets driven into depends on how successful those solidarity organizations really are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Because one of the things solidarity groups try to do is to get more people into their vision of building what the world should look like. Right. Okay, so we're getting close to the end here. There was one really concrete uh, example in in your writing that that like jumped out to me is something close near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, you talked about boycotting SodaStream, um, specifically in relation to I think Israel, um, which I didn't know there was a, there was a connection there. If I'm being honest, um, I I use SodaStream a lot uh, as a a person of partially Jewish descent. Seltzer is uh, part of part of my lifeblood. Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to buy individual seltzer bottles. That seems really wasteful and problematic. So, like, how do I, as a young activist, balance, you know, my desire to, you know, be in solidarity with Palestinians or something like that with my desire to reduce my use of non-renewable resources? Yeah. So this is a serious problem. So I actually don't know that SodaStream is still um, manufactured in uh, settlements e- was okay. um okay and i uh i maintain that but that's a choice that i've made to boycott soda stream i know other people who have made different choices i know other people who made the choices even like when it was well known that they were being manufactured in israeli settlements and these kinds of problems first of all, as a critical theorist, are like my bread and butter. It's like, no, this Mm -hmm. is what's wrong with the world, right? Um, There is no right choice there. All you have Mm -hmm. are wrong choices everywhere you look, right? Um, And I've made one wrong choice. I uh, drink three cans of seltzer 
<laughs> right? Uh, two or three <laughs> a day. And then I uh-huh. put them in their little stupid bags and I take them to the store and I return them in the can return for my nickels. Um, uh-huh. And in a lot of ways, that's also the wrong choice. So solidarity here is also a question of like tactics and goals, right? So it depends on what you're trying to do at that moment with the choice that you've made. And so neither um, trying to undermine the sort of genocidal Israeli project, nor Mm -hmm. trying to undermine um, the sort of ecocidal capitalist project, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. By just like Mm -hmm. creating waste on waste on waste. Um, Neither of those are bad things to be doing. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that we live in a world that's so bad. Individually, we can't make choices that avoid doing the bad thing in some way, at least Mm -hmm. some of the time, if not Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Yeah, this is the sort of classic, right? There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, I suppose, kind of idea. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the day, right, we've got this rejection of both um, anti-conflict fetishism, of conflict fetishism you talk about in the book. I really like the passage where you talk about how you're more interested in uh, the ends of conflict rather than the end of conflict. Um, are there any other major sort of on-the-ground takeaways that you hope people get from your arguments? Yeah, I think that this idea of um, a kind of radical democracy that isn't bogged down by the sort of ontology that historically it's brought along with it. So I'm really explicit in the text about um, trying to get out of just like this fetishism, not just of conflict, but of Carl Schmidt man like (laughs) this nazi looms large he is just (laughs) sitting back there um being like well i'm you know i'm the nazi who described the ontology that this Mm -hmm. specific way of thinking about the world is in some way based on right and it's hard to weed out nazi fetishism i'll tell you what (laughs) yeah they show up everywhere man hey look they have some pretty pretty good costumes is what i'm saying right (laughs) (laughs) cosplay wise they're pretty they're pretty effective Oh man! I'll, just thinking about the authoritarian bottoms now. Um, I yeah, right. That's <laughs> <laughs> a deep Twitter cut, folks. If you're not if you're not compulsively online, I apologize. But uh, um, right, so this idea that um, conflict is sort of baked into the structure of what it is to be a person, and it's not just the Nazi. Uh, that brings us this, but it's also the enlightenment, right? So mm-hmm. I was talking about these enlightenment figures earlier, talking about how we hate each other. And they don't think that that's a contingent feature of the um, just so happens structure of our social world, right? They think that's right. our nature. They think that- no, You're talking about my boy Hobbes here, aren't you? This is Hobbes' fault, isn't it? I'm not just talking about Hobbes. <laughs> I'm talking about um, Montesquieu. I'm talking about Kant. Mm. Um, it was all over the place, right? And and they thought that was really just how we are. And so mm-hmm. I work really hard at saying this is not, I can't say definitively this isn't just how we are because I don't have like a human nature detector that will give me this answer. Um, 
But I can say that look at all of the social forces that push us into being like this, right? That mm -hmm. these conflicts don't come from nowhere. Oftentimes the conflicts we have with each other are substantive and they're about something that really matters to us. And it's not just like how much my boss is going to pay me, although that is a conflict that does really matter to me, but also what kind of life will I be permitted to have? Who will I be permitted to be, right? These sort of fundamental questions about what we are and what we are allowed to do and be are really important for us. And so that comes about in part because of a world that puts stri strictures on where we can direct those energies. Um, and so I think, you know, before we look at human nature, like maybe we should look at capitalism. That's just my mm. suggestion. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And maybe, we, you know, if you hang around a little bit and we can do some bonus content about those strictures a little bit there. But I think that's a good a good spot for us to wrap up. So, you know, last thing I'd like to ask before we get to the torture session, are there any resources, maybe non-Nazi, for example, resources that you would recommend for folks who want to do a bit of a deeper dive onto the issue of solidarity? Um, sure. So I would recommend uh, the book that I really enjoyed reading the most while I was researching this was Cindy Milstein's Taking Sides, Revolutionary Solidarity and the Poverty of Liberalism. Um, and that is not like an academic text, so it should be really mm -hmm. easily accessible. Um, for academic texts, I think Sally Schultz's Political Solidarity and Avery Kohler's A Moral Theory of Solidarity are both well worth looking into. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Unfortunately, that means I now have to torture you. Okay. So <laughs> this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? That is your only choice. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real or not real. So Do I get to give an explanation? Uh, we, we will discuss, maybe, maybe discuss a little bit in the after dark or in the, uh, the okay. very important, the, the void important people segment. Um, okay. But for now, no, just real or not real. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, just to check, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. Uh, the external world, real or not real? Real. <laughs> We're off to a beggar start here. Uh, colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness, real, real. or not real? Oh, real. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, okay. Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Not real. Uh, genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Not real. Morality? Not real. <laughs> Rights? <laughs> Not real. Knowledge? Not real. God or gods? Real. Society? Real. Money? Not real. <laughs> Numbers? Oh, that went so hard. There are literally real numbers. Come on. Um, real. <laughs> I, I feel forced into it. 
That's why it's called torture. Uh, fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Not real. Chairs. Not real. Sandwiches. Yes, real. <laughs> Science. Not real. Uh, natural laws. Real. Uh, beauty. Real. Love. Not real. Causality. Not real. And finally, time. Not real. <laughs> okay, you survived. How do you feel? I feel horrible. <laughs> I feel like I was so caught up in there. Did I correctly ask you whether or not society is real or did I skip society? You did ask. I did think it's okay, real. You can, okay, yeah, you, you got it. I feel was, like I was trying to, trying to concentrate. Yeah. I had to like kill some of my children there. I... Okay. Yeah. No, I understand that feeling. So we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit in the, the VIP segment. But um, do you want to let folks know? I really appreciate you taking the time to let folks know where they can find you as well as your wonderful book, Solidarity in Conflict. Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Rochelle HD. And you can find my book, Solidarity and Conflict, at um, on Stanford University Press. It's available for pre-order. Okay, well, there you go. Get it out. Get it early so you can get it on the uh, the Amazon list and all those sorts of things, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Shelley, thank you so much for taking the time, and um, we'll have a little bit of chat. And you know, folks, if you enjoyed the chat and want to hear a little more, you know, come join us over on Patreon and check it out. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, R.E.O. Teabaggin. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lauren Shielding. You think social media is toxic. You should try 150 nanograms of botulism. Dude, fix the vote. Any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the California Fair Maps Act, Chad T and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And... If you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus VIP content. Most of all, forever in solidarity, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.